This episode is a long conversation with artist Audrey Flack, a painter who may be best known for her contribution to the photorealism movement in the late 1960s and throughout the 70s, when she was the only woman helping to define this new form of realism that looked closely at photographs to help render the world in paint. Instead of riding the wave of fame from that era, Flack actually stopped painting in the 1980s, preferring to focus on sculpture and other projects. But she's back to painting, and in the last few years, she's picked up the brush again and is creating works that continue to speak to her love of images. She's a veteran of the New York art world, and her art is in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, the Whitney Museum, and dozens of others. I invited her to the studio to record her first ever podcast, so we can hear what it was like for an artist who began life as an abstract expressionist painter, before turning to realism and public art, and then returning to her painterly roots. The conversation includes discussion of her time in college with, under the direction of renowned modernist Joseph Albers, as well as an unnerving experience with Pollock. Yes, Jackson Pollock and how she coped raising children throughout all of this, including the fact that one of her children is autistic, and I'm sure you can imagine that how hard that was to accommodate during the 60s and 70s, during a period when few resources were available. I also want to mention that you can periodically hear a little stray ping during the interview, as unfortunately there was an errant device in the studio we weren't able to track down until all of it was done. We're joined for the interview by artist Sharon Loudon, who's a mutual friend of Flack and myself. And I hope you enjoy this epic interview with the talented artist. So, Audrey, thank you so much for being here. This is really exciting. So I want to start at the beginning. Where were you born? And tell us a little bit about your childhood. Let's see. I was born, I can't tell you how many years ago, a lot of years, 90 years ago, in Brooklyn. Wow, what part of Brooklyn? Brighton Beach. And what was Brighton Beach like then? Well, I moved away when I was a year, so I can't quite tell you, but um, I think it was probably mixed, maybe Jewish. Mm -hmm. I don't know, now it's very Russian. Yep. But a lot of Russian Jewish. Yeah, yeah, but I have the ocean in my bones. Mm. I do. So that so that started there. The ocean, yeah. That started the there. Ocean. So after a year, where did you move to? I think they moved to the Lower East Side. You know, the we were poor, so you moved a lot because you got a free rent. Mm. What does you that know? mean? Well, if you moved, I think every six months or every year, you know, you got free free months rent ah. so people moved a lot and then where i really grew up after a couple of years on the lower east side was washington heights which is getting very popular now super popular nobody heard of it then you know yeah and so i grew up on 175th street oh wow and, and fort washington avenue and the hudson river is my river <laughs> and I remember when there was not one building on the Palisades. Wow. The Palisades were just a beautiful rock formation. Okay, so now fast forward a little bit. When did you decide you were going to become an artist? 
You know, Harag, uh, I don't think it. I I don't think it was a decision. I think for some people it's a calling, mm -hmm. like to the clergy. You know, right. you just uh, you got to do it. And I think in in those days it takes that kind of uh, intensity and feeling because. There weren't that many artists. I mean, it's right. so different now. Right. So what was the calling, though? Because, you know, I what mean... What was the calling? Like, meaning, like, because, you know, usually there's a calling, there's a purpose, right? Or a mission, right? Usually that's what the calling is. So what was your mission? Oh, that came later. You know, early on, I was hyperactive. And they would have put me on Ritalin or, you know, whatever, because right. I couldn't sit still. Got it. I still can't sit still. And, and I went to a school where you had to sit with your hands clasped on the desk and I would like jerk around and itch and move and, and then I was called bad and I was always thrown out of class. Oh, wow. I thought I was pretty stupid and, and a very, I didn't have a good image of myself. Mm. But outside, one teacher took pity on me and gave me a sheet of oak tag just kind of mm -hmm. paper and some crayons. And I became the class artist. Wow. And that, it was the only thing that made, that put the world in order for me, was seeing. Hmm. You know, and I think, you know, physiologically, um, my eyes are really sharp, you know. Mm -hmm. I've been in foundries with a lot of macho guys and, I'm saying, you know, the statue is not straight. She's at a very slight angle, and we've had arguments for hours. You're shaking your head, right? I'm just laughing because I can just see you doing that. Yeah, and they're, oh, she's being difficult. You know, she's oh. a lady. And then they'd measure, and they'd take plumb lines. And, of course, I was right. Right. You know, so the other thing that I think was important besides having, I think, superior vision. My daughter has hearing, you know, she's got perfect pitch or something. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, my body calmed down, my hyperactive senses. You know, we, we made a diorama in kindergarten and, and I lost track. I, I, was, I was projected into sacred time out of the profane time. Of, so you knew it. You were in the zone. I was in the zone. I didn't know. I was right. a little kid. I, but I was in a zone that only... I loved it. Did you have artists around you? Because often, you know, I mean, was your family supportive of Never the idea? Never saw an artist. They didn't know what an artist was. Okay. You know, and, and then when I heard about music and art high school, I thought, oh my God, a high school where I could study art. You needed to have a portfolio. I didn't know what it was. Right. You know? So I said, Mom, you know, what's a portfolio? They nobody knew. So <laughs> I, I love said, it. go to Woolworths, go to the five and ten, they have everything. So I took my allowance and I traipsed over to Woolworth and I asked, Oh, do you have a portfolio? And the girl at the cosmetics counter while I'm trying on lipsticks. And nobody knew what I was talking about. Finally, somebody said, go over there to the stationery department. And lo and behold, there was a little 8 by 10 leatherette um, folder with gold embossed 
writing that said portfolio. (laughs) Oh my God, here's a portfolio. So I bought it and I couldn't understand why there was writing paper and letter and uh, envelopes in it. But I took it out and I made my 10 drawings and I went to take the test. And I got out, my father drove me in his old Buick and I opened the door and I wanted it fall through the floor and die. <laughs> As I saw these kids with these huge black portfolios and I had this little stupid, I knew immediately what it was. I love it. I love it. Okay, so that was at the high school you that went to? Well, music and art. Music greatest, and art school. Greatest, Great. most important thing. Where, where was that? Music and art was on 135th Street and Convent Avenue. Got it. Okay, so you went to high school, you left high school. What happened then? You know, there were three lucky things that happened to me because I was supposed to get married Mm -hmm. and have children. You know, girl, you don't have... My mother's mantra was too much education ruins a girl's chance of marriage. Yep. (sighs) Although she was a very bright woman who was a... uh, was an addictive gambler but she had those ideas Mm -hmm. so the next lucky thing that happened was that another friend of mine said she was taking a test for Cooper Union Mm -hmm. a free because we didn't have much money Mm -hmm. no girl in the family had ever gone to college Uh, and I found out about the test and got in amazing got in And the third one was, I'm about to graduate Cooper and uh, still being in trouble, you know, still being Audrey. And uh, I get tapped on the shoulder by the dean who says, "Um, go up to the president's office. And I thought, oh, they're going to throw me out. I'm not going to graduate. Terrible things. And I was used to this. And I go and I open the door. And there is an apparition. It's Joseph Albers sitting in an easy chair talking to the president. And Albers had just left Black Mountain. Mm -hmm. He took over Yale. Mm -hmm. And he had inherited students that were um, painting in very tight academic manner and they didn't know what the hell he was talking about in his Truman accent yeah he was talking modernism (laughs) one they did not know and they did not care and he was going to lose his job Hmm. why because he he left he left as dean of black mountain to come to yale yeah and there was they didn't know what he, that he was losing the students. He had no connection with the students. Oh, wow. They didn't understand the language of modernism, and Albers was not communicating very well. Got it. He had this idea that he would import a couple of revolutionary rebels mm-hmm. to help him revolutionize the school. Hmm. And um, So is that they, how you ended up at Yale? That's I got a scholarship. 
So you went from Cooper Union to Yale? Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you got a scholar. So both of you, Sharon, and you both are Yaleys. <laughs> when did you go, Sharon? I went 89 to 91 for MFA. So can I ask both of you about Yale? And that experience? You go ahead. Karen. No, Audrey, you go Audrey, ahead. No, no, <laughs> you... no, no. It was different when you went there. So different. why don't we start with you, Audrey, and then we'll ask Sharon to chime in to see how it goes. Well, I, you know, I thought I died and went to heaven. I mean, this is, uh, I'm a New York kid. Right. And this is uh, Ivy League school mm -hmm. with real ivy growing on the buildings. <laughs> I remember seeing, I remember my first day, and I saw these boys in Shetland sweaters and cashmere sweaters tied around there. <laughs> oh my God. Playing football in the mud. Ooh. And I'm thinking, their sweaters are going to get dirty. Don't they care? You know? <laughs> oh, um, money. Yeah, it was quite amazing. By the way, I did, that was my first protest. Um, First protest. Uh, Tell us yeah, more. Did, well, we had to sign into the school. Okay. Right? And you had to go to the secretary's office and sign papers. Mm -hmm. And part of it was race, mm -hmm. uh, religion, and gender. Mm. Well, clearly I'm white. Mm-hmm. And clearly, I'm female. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but I'm also Jewish. Mm -hmm. And there was a quota system, which oh, I did not know. Very strong quota system. Right, right. So I refused to sign any of it. And they said, um, "You can't, you can't go to the school unless you sign this. Wow. You can't be allowed in." And I said, "Well." I don't think this is right. I'm not signing it. And they made me sit in that hard bench in that secretary's office until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It, it, word went up to the president of Yale. when they And I said, oh, my God, what did I do? They're going to kick me out. Why did I do this? this is... But they let me in. So they, they just... They had one woman, one black woman medical student... Mm -hmm. So that took care of that. I um, was one of the couple of Jewish people uh, and women. Why do you think they gave you a pass not to sign the document? Uh, maybe they didn't want trouble. Mm. Maybe I was wanted. You me. look like trouble, Audrey. That's uh, it. <laughs> no, you know, I never. I don't. I'm not. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's why I'm doing my job interviewing you. Well, I want to know. I don't know. I, okay. I, I, I just really basically want to do my work. So was Yale overall a positive experience? The oh, my mixed, God. Mixed bag? What would you call it? It was it was fabulous. I had the best classes that I ever took. I took every art history class. Mm -hmm. There was one woman teacher who they gave the worst times to. Her name was Elizabeth Chase, Betsy Chase. And I... I went to contact her and she had died. Mm. But she taught a course called Iconography of the Bible. Mm. Changed my life. Oh, wow. What about that class? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I know, you know, I know more about the saints than, mm. 
you know, any any good Catholic. <laughs> so, and it affected, Ooh, okay. I'm going to ask you about that when we talk about your paintings, because I can kind of see how maybe that helped you sort of formulate some of them. So how about you, Sharon? What was your experience at Yale like? No, it was it was uh, intense. It was really intense. I really enjoyed it. Actually, there was it was an important time. It was mm. transformative. I, I, I mean, pretty similar. Yeah, you know, in a way. But I didn't have Albers there, though. Oh, be lucky you. <laughs> so tell me, how was Albers like as a teacher, Audrey? Oh my, well, Albers and I. You know, I think. In a, I'm, I'm afraid to say this. I think he's a dangerous man, hmm. in a sense that he's dogmatic, right? And he had his ideas, and you had. I think he ruined a lot of people. Mm. A, a great teacher, a good teacher, doesn't need to make clones. That's right. And he needed to make clones. What happened with us is he had his color theory. I think one of the things he said was, uh, if you don't listen to me, you might as well commit suicide. <laughs> that was one of his sayings. That's charming. And he looked so grandfatherly. You know, he had these pink Bavarian cheeks and white hair, and there was this myth about him, and I was, I was very impressed. But I was slinging paint from 20 feet away. You know, I was hanging out with Pollock and... I was, which is why he wanted me there. Oh, wow. So he, he knew that. So he knew that. Oh, he knew that so, he had So when did, you start, when did you start hanging out with, uh, was it at Cooper Union you started well, hanging we're, out? We're, okay, yeah, we're going back and forth. That's why I'm well, confused where, how he would have known. It was, at, well, when he interviewed me. Okay, at Cooper at Union. Cooper, Got it. He said, ah, oh, gotcha. you know, you know Jackson Pollock? I said, yes. Got it. He said, and you know gotcha. Franz Klein? Yes. And, uh, how do you paint? Well, yeah, and I had to bring my paintings up there for him to see. Mm -hmm. And then he said, yeah, yeah, you will go. So he knew that I was what he needed to help revolutionize the school. Mm. You know, if you're sitting there with a, a student that was painting with a brush with two hairs in it and applying gold leaf, yep. and I'm slinging paint from a bucket, that student has got to be affected by me. Right. No. And he was right. I mean, we, 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 we did it for him. So you were, at that time, you were still an abstract painter doing all over yeah, paintings, right? I was an abstract expressionist. Okay. Yeah. So now, how did you meet Jackson Pollock and Franz Klein and all these people? But with, with Albers, by the way, we had mm. to have an extreme break. What does that mean? Well, I, I, I stopped having anything to do with him mid midway and I thought he was going to kick me out to his credit he never did huh so why what happened well there was an incident it was an incident I was I was I was making a grid mm -hmm. on a painting and the grid had squares and it was only the basis for my color th for my spatial theories what color was going to be in front of the grid what was going to be in back of the grid, you know, I was playing around with that. I mm -hmm. wasn't import, uh, interested in the fact that this grid was squares. Right. Albers came in and says, ah, squares. 
he was doing this homage to the square right. paintings while Which I was known there. For, yeah. And he sat down and he got very excited. But he got a little too excited in the wrong way. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh wow. <laughs> His hand went up from my knee and I was watching I was watching it in disbelief. Oh no. Saying, you know, I'm at Yale. This is not happening. This is Joseph Albers. It's not happening. And it was happening. And it finally got up to my, what, crotch? Yep. Went, you know, right between my, and I jumped up and the chair got knocked over and. Oh, wow. Uh, that was it. I never, sp never spoke to him again. Never oh. took a class with him. Uh, but to his credit, you know, he, I, I saw him watching me, keeping an eye on the work. Um, you know, he could have done something awful. He didn't. Okay. You know, so. Well, I mean, you say to his credit, but really, he still transgressed. So, you know, but, to your yeah. credit, you stayed in the program. Oh, God, I was, there was so many great, I took a course with, um, the art, an art history course. Seymour, Charles Seymour Jr. What a great course. I learned so much. Mm. Wow. Okay. So now let's hear about, I guess, I'm, I'm curious about the Jackson Pollock and Franz Klein. What's well, that all Sharon, about? Sharon, don't you want to, we got to get some more from you? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, she'll jump in. She'll I, jump in. I, we're, I, we're setting the stage still. <laughs> I, I, I want the Audrey Flack story. I love hearing all. Of I, this. I want the story. We're 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 going epic now. So, so let's Aww. let's. I'm absorbing let's your energy. And and Sharon's also here partly to make you and me both feel comfortable because I think she has that effect on us. So she does. She's, well, you you are too. Oh, you're too kind. And I like that ATM machine. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> all the compliments to Andrew and Essien. That's awesome. So. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, here you are, this young, bushy-tailed painter, shows up at Cooper Union. You know, you mentioned yourself, grew up from, uh, you know, a poor background. You well, know, we, this were, we were very poor during the Depression. Okay. And then we were like, I don't know. Lower middle class. Middle class. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Becoming then, middle class. Then, and right. then became middle class. Which yeah. a lot of, yeah. Okay, that make, totally makes sense. So... Tell us about that experience and encountering these painters. I mean, did you know of them before you met them? Was it something like, were they even well-known beyond certain art circles? I mean, I'd love to, I'd love for you to set the stage a little bit. Well, the stage was set at um, Music and Art because in Music and Art, you know, I always wanted to draw like an old master. Mm -hmm. I would like to say old mistress now. <laughs> and that got beaten out of every art student mm. because then representational art was scorned mm -hmm. it was it was bad it was lower class it, it, and if you were which is one of the one of the reasons that a certain museum in New York has pr promoted that in those days I uh, think we all know which one yeah well I'll talk about that because MoMA used to have ads you're too young to remember. And they would have a picture of a um, of a Bouguereau. I don't know if yep. people know Bouguereau. You the know 19th Bouguereau. century artist. 19th century Academy artist. Yes. 
who's a beautiful painter. You know, people scorn him. I love Bugarov. Don't be afraid to like those kind of things. Mm -hmm. He's an incredible artist. So they would put a Bugarov up, a picture of that, and then they would put a Picasso. Mm -hmm. And the headline read, which is the work of art? Oh, wow. And if you were an ignorant dolt, lower class, bourgeois idiot, you liked the Bouguereau, which all the, <laughs> all the people liked the Bouguereau. Uh, but if you were smart and intellectual and with it, you went for the Picasso. And that is how MoMA shaped vision. That's and, how they shaped right. modernism. And, right. and there was a kind of elitist... Classism, too. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And, and they really dictated in a very subtle way what you were going to like. So it started in high school. And I, I even forged a few Picassos, which are out there. Wait, what? Yeah, you did. They're easy to do. So what do you mean? You, you know, forged you, them you and you... You can't forge a Bouguereau. Right, but you do you mean you... can't forge fo a flat. Wait, you forged them and then they're <laughs> circulating out there yeah, as Picassos? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my. Any, and any... So, uh, I, I did, you know... Do you know where any of the them cute? are? No. Ooh, okay. This is a little mystery I like. Okay, go on. Uh, and then, you know, it was the cube, cubism... It was modernism, mm -hmm. really. So I get to Cooper, and Cooper is on Astor Place, and it's in the heart of this burgeoning new movement, abstract expressionism. And my teacher, Nick Marsicano, is very handsome, uh, was a good friend of all of those guys. Got it. And he was an original member of the Artist Club, and... You know, all the girls had a crush on him, including me, but he liked me mm -hmm. and he would take me around with him. And that's when I met. And he also taught that. I mean, I was doing stain paintings mm -hmm. before Helen Frankenthaler, but I didn't want to work that way. But I have a couple. I have a couple in oh, my wow. studio. So what years are these? 40s? See, I got out of Coop, I got out of M and A uh, at forty eight. Okay. So it's forty nine, fifty, fifty one. Got it. Okay. So what was it like meeting these? Like, did you know who you were meeting? The Jackson Pollocks and the oh, France clients? Oh, they were the heroes. So they, they were. were. Right and, you know, yep. the art world was very small. Huh? Mm -hmm. Not like today. Right. You knew everybody. Right. You just knew everybody. You went. There were three galleries. Right. Three. There was um, Sidney Janis, Coots, mm -hmm. and Charlie Egan. That's oh, it. That was it. And then later the co-ops opened up, and then Betty Parsons. And you know, but even when there were a lot of galleries, you knew you could go to every gallery in a day. Uh, yeah, easily. Easily. In a, easily. And you knew every artist around. So were you impressed by these artists? Oh my God. Yeah. They were great. And they were all honchos, you know, they were all, it was very male, Macho. very, yeah. you know. And it was, and I, I saved enough money <clears throat> to rent a studio because 
it wasn't like going to college where you have a dorm room and you go, you have a lunch room. I mean, this is the Bowery. This was bums. I had to step over bums to get into the front door of Cooper. So I found a studio in a condemned building. And it was, it was condemned because it should be condemned. <laughs> and where was the building? It was on 8th Street on 3rd Avenue. It's still oh. there. It's oh. re refurbished. But the stairway was slanted, and I was on the third floor. And you could look. The floor was so rotted. There was a big hole. And you could look right <laughs> down oh my gosh. to the second floor where there was wow. an artist who inked Spider-Man. No way. Yeah. Wow. And I used to ink Spider-Man when he had too much work. I did. I, he gave me the work. Amazing. So were you impressed by these guys? Were these artists, did they treat you well? I mean, what was it like? I mean, I guess these are, this is the storied sort of legend of the New York school, right? Yeah. These are the characters. Yeah. yeah. And you were there. I was there. So yeah. what, what would you, what would you tell people about that? And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell people about that. I'm the last one standing. Hmm. For reason is that I didn't drink myself into a stupor. Right. I didn't shoot drugs. Right. They scared the shit out of me, they, these people, a lot. So were but both of those very much part of that scene? Oh, my God. That was it. That really? Was it. They were all drunks. Every there were drunks? The women and the men. And they were addicts, too? Well, I didn't know it, but Larry Rivers was shooting heroin at the time. Got it. And I think Mike Goldberg. Uh, but mostly it was alcohol. Right. And that was just everywhere. That was it. That's what you did. So were they functional alcoholics? I don't, I, you know, I don't well, mean to don't... flatten it, but it's just, what, what was it like? <sighs> you know, for me, I, I, I put on a good act, you know. <laughs> I was probably cute. And you, uh, that was another thing that wasn't very nice. Mm -hmm. If you weren't good looking, they made really disparaging remarks. Bill de Kooning said... Uh, if Lee Krasner sat on his lap, he'd spread his legs and let her fall on her ass, you know. And it's kind of not nice. Crass. Yeah. yeah. It was, well, <laughs> I could tell you some real crass things that he said. You know, these people, and a lot of it is in a book that I'm writing, because you feel, I, I almost feel a little bit like, bad or guilty or about saying anything not nice because I think Bill de Kooning is a great painter. I, I love his work. Mm -hmm. It really has But he's a human being. But the guy was a drop dead alcoholic drunk who probably, you know, was had terribly abusive abusive language with his daughter and probably abused her in many, many ways. And she wound up an alcoholic drug addict who who killed herself. Right. And you know it it's been glamorized. Mm. And it's not glamorized. It's mm. not glamorous. Mm. It's not glamorous and I don't think people should look at it that way. I think That's a great point. Got to see the underbelly. Absolutely. Well, I mean what you said earlier it's also you know People were struggling. It's not like people were making a lot of money. I mean, there was like, an, an, I mean, was there a career for people? Oh, that was the beautiful part about it. You know, art was just, it was 
it was your life. You just talked about art on the street. You talked about art in the Cedar Bar. And it was, it was, there was idealism. It mm. wasn't money. It wasn't collectors. And when that happened, the thing started breaking up. Mm. But there was um, an intensity and, and you, you went for the sublime. Mm. Um, which is what I think Pollock did. It was it was beautiful. Uh, it was a beautiful moment in time, but also dangerous. Hmm. Why dangerous? Well, uh, you know, most of the women I became quite close to Grace Hardigan mm-hmm. and Elaine de Kooning, but later, after they stopped drinking. Hmm. But they, the women, that's why. I'm, Sharon, I'm so glad you're my friend. I was always looking for a woman artist with all these macho guys around. <laughs> and and these women acted like the men. Right. And they felt that their work had to be brutal and strong and heavy heavy lines and you know, when you really think in terms of art history, how the movement is defined, it's completely male. Totally. The same, by the way, that they tried to do with photorealism. Hmm. Right, because you were the the yeah. one woman in the yeah. movement. That's right. And they try to define it as cars, motorcycles, right. deadpan faces like right. Chuck, unemotional, unfeeling, right. cool colors. Right. So now, tell me a little bit about. I guess you bit you went to the Cedar Bar. Mm. What was that like? What would it actually, what, what did it smell like? What were people like? As a woman, did you ever feel like you weren't welcome? Oh, no, they like women. You know, the guys like women. And women were, you know, most of those guys, women were to be used and poked and prodded and slept with. And mm. if you had a woman, she was going to send out your announcements and your brochures and pose for you and gotcha um, were women welcome to join the art conversations well and the debates el- yeah in a way but you know they knew they had to be tough and i think poor elaine i think about her i think her toughness sort of did her in we had lunch every week at eddie's luncheonette in east hampton it was a little hole in the wall and, you know, we used to go out and do watercolors together. And Elaine, Elaine was brilliant. You know, but she puffed away on her cigarettes like Betty Davis, mm-hmm. you know. And she had this tough manner. And she was dying of lung cancer. Mm. Told no one. Mm. I didn't know. I'm watching her puff away. And there was a kind of behavior. Grace was the same until Grace joined AA. Uh, Joan Mitchell, you don't want to know about Joan Mitchell. Well, I've heard stories about Joan Mitchell. Thank God, you don't want to know about her. And, you know, I think with her there was some mental illness, as there was with Pollock. Mm. So what are you talking about? A group of people that um, kind of scorned... no, I felt like, oh my God, I was bourgeois. That's a dirty word. You know, mm-hmm. I better not show that. I mm-hmm. better not. But I was. <laughs> no, I had certain kind of. I wouldn't. 
I didn't. I wouldn't go to bed with them just to say I went to bed with them. Hmm. So, what do you think you learned during that period? Because I mean, I understand you're trying to bring it down to earth. It was a real scene with its own problems, challenges. You know, brilliant people, but also people with a lot of other issues. Which yeah. you know, they're human. That's the way it is. What do you feel like you you took away from that period? You know, Rog, I'm I'm still evaluating it hmm. because it's like if you're a little duck and that's what you see. You know, I mean, it was what I saw. It was hmm. my I had a break from my I I broke from them after that night with Pollock. Wait, what when night I, with Pollock? Well, Let's hear about that. And that that's that's when I never went back to the cedar again. And, and and I and it was the end, and that's when my work started changing. Uh, I went to the bar, Cedar I, Bar. Yeah, you. I mean, the the beauty of the purity of caring about nothing but the art was was uh, was that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. You wonder about about Lee Krasner and Elaine and all those women who just promoted their husbands. Mm-hmm. No, what, what what was that about? But anyhow, I, you, you, you were alone all day in your studio, and so I would fix myself up and put a little lipstick on and, you know, change my dirty sweatshirt and go to the bar. And I remember seeing Larry Rivers and Mike Goldberg, and Mike was very handsome. Mm sitting with two women there were booths in front and it's very crowded and smoky and exciting lots of art conversation mm-hmm. lots of shot glasses of scotch with beer chasers and they called me over and said come on sit down and they were they were they were they were like a little too loud and i, I told you that's when larry was shooting up and i didn't know but I knew that they were drunk, and I was very attracted to Mike. And had I sat down, I would have been in the in crowd, right? Mike was having an affair with Joan Mitchell, mm-hmm. and um, I just could, couldn't do it. Mm. So I walked to the back, and I sat at a table thinking about what I was going to do. And I, right opposite me at the bar was Jackson. Hmm. He had a big head, and he was um, he had his his hand cupped to his forehead, uh, leaning down drinking, and then he spotted me. You know, remember I'm young mm-hmm. and fresh. Then he started looking at me, and I I I was getting. I was, I was getting high from just, you know. I mean, I had come across him before, and I had said hello at the artist club. We had minimal chats, but this was different. Mm-hmm. And then he staggered over and almost fell into the seat next to me and began rubbing his stubbly face against mine. It was like prickles, like a porcupine. And um, 
and we started talking. And I, we must have been there a couple of hours. And he, all right. So we ordered something to eat, like a ham and cheese, and you know, he ordered more drinks, and I had a wine. And I wanted to talk about his work, and I wanted to talk about art. Mm -hmm. And he, he wanted me. Right. And he uh, started pinching me, and you know, and I said, Jackson, you know, calm down. And, so we did, and then we ate, and then he leans over at one, and I looked at him, you know, he had these little capillaries were broken on his nose. Mm -hmm. You know, when you drink too much, yep. it does things to you. Yeah. And he, uh, I couldn't kiss him. Right. You know, it was foul. I also thought he was very old. Ah, my God. <laughs> what was he, 40, you know? Oh my God! So, but so he was like me, my hero, and my my God. He was like a star. And then he leans over and he says, "Let's fuck." Oh my gosh! And I said, "Oh, Jackson." He said, "Yeah, let's go to you know go to my place and we'll fuck." I said, "No, that's not going to happen." Well, we'll go to your place. And he kept going on and on. I said, "Jackson, no, not going to do that." Oh, calm down. I put my arm on his. And um, it was very sad. Right. He was, like, desperate. Mm. And he needed a fix. Right. So, um... It, and I'm, gu I'm guessing he was with Lee Krasner then. Yeah, and I'm thinking, yeah. you know, he's married. What is he doing? Why right. is he, you know... You know I introduced Ruth Kligman to Jackson. Oh, that was that's another story. I'm Got so it. sorry that ever happened. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, I I they were closing the place. I went home alone, and it was scary. I had moved to Chelsea by then because mm -hmm. because my studio in the condemned building, the toilet was in the middle of the in the middle of the room. That was it. <laughs> it was in the middle. There was no sink, no nothing. It was just, oh wow! Thank God, wow. no shower, no kitchen. Mm. So I moved to Chelsea to the floor walk up, and I walked home and I said, "I'm never going back." Oh wow! So a lot of people would have just sort of turned their back on the scene altogether, and like maybe even art. You, it didn't. Well, a lot of people would have gone to bed with them. True. <laughs> I mean, That's true too. A lot of people That's would true, have true. used that opportunity. You and know, I'm sure some as, people did. At, yeah. um, most of them did. Right. Right. So. so, but you you kept the faith. You kept the faith of well, your work and dedication. Yeah. So, how did you do that? Because you know, during that during that era, it wasn't easy, particularly no. as a woman. No. So, how did you stay true to what it is you wanted to do? You just do. How do you? You know, you just do. I had a million jobs. I mean, jobs. it's hard. I, I mean, as much as I'd like to say it's easy, it's not. And it's I'm sure not. the same with you. I so. had the worst jobs. I mean, I, I had all kinds of jobs. I was a horrible typist. I, mean, I got fired for more jobs than you could imagine, <laughs> you know. And I kept up my habit. That's right. what I did. I went on unemployment. I painted in my bedroom. I did what I had to do. You have to do it. You right. got when you got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. So you left. You left college. What in the mid fifties? Got out of Yale fifty two. Fifty two. Okay, fifty two. Then what? What did you do then? 
Oh my God, I worked for the Berlin and Jones Envelope Factory where I sat next to a gluing machine that put this sticky, horrible glue on the envelopes. <laughs> I worked for uh, an accountant who fired me immediately. You know, I, I painted roses on hurricane lamps, on glass lampshades. Hmm. Glass lamps, and I wired the lamps. Ooh. Wow. I designed textiles and tried to organize. You know, if I got a penny for every textile, I still see them walking around my design. Really? Yeah, but I couldn't organize the artists. Oh. We got, what did we get? $64 of design and $27 of coloring. Wow. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. What was the company you were uh, doing textile designs well, for? Well, I worked for a guy named Jack Prince. Okay. It was a text. He, you know, it was a great job because I could just sit there and make these. And you know, did you ever hear of Paul Feck? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul sat right next no to me. No way. The artist yeah. Paul Feck. Yeah. Wow. Paul and I amazing. both worked for Jack, and Paul was so beautiful. Wow. And I started his meat series. What do you mean you started his meat series? Well. My index finger okay. was the first piece of meaty cast. No way. And put it in a butter dish. No way. Yeah. That's and your I, finger. That my finger. Wow. That's incredible. So yeah. were most of your designs for those textiles, were they God, floral? He was, he was what so were they? beautiful, Paul. Mm. But what were your designs like for that? For oh, that time? I did geometrics. Okay. I did. I was a great rose expert. Got it. Mm. And I did the poire rose. Ooh. But you know they sold millions of hmm. of of tons of fabric, even a penny a yard. Would have mm. made your career or made your life. Okay, so now we're getting into the fifties. You're still doing all over painting, is that correct? Or are you? Have you changed the type of work you were doing in the fifties? Oh, well, I started to, you know, the Abex work started to get um, shapes. And it started to have a sky or forms, and then I did. You could make out figures. So it was starting to be abstractions. Start, which yeah. which, De Kooning was doing too, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. And um, and then I just this urge to draw, you know, to, you know, mm. Albers did not allow models. So you had no right. drawing at Yale. Did you have drawing when you went there? We did. We had uh, Bernie Chait, oh, yeah. who I loved. I yeah. loved him so much. He was a great teacher. And then William Bailey. Yeah. Oh, my God. Bill Bailey and Chait. They both were big into figuration. Yeah. But I was abstracting those figures. And I told Bailey one, t one time, I said, uh, that's that's still figuration. He said, no, once it's abstract, it's not figuration. <laughs> so, but I'd have to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. So Sharon, do you have a question for Audrey? I mean, you're hearing all these. I, I'd love to also connect as a as a, another woman artist yeah. in, in the art world. Any questions in terms of what we've been hearing so far about her sort of earlier years? I love that you have had stayed to your truth. You know, you stay to your truth, as you always do. You stay to your truth. And that power, that got you through that. Did you ever have any doubts about that? Like, looking back? I mean, it must have been, I mean, must have been challenging during that time. And But yet you stayed true 
to uh, the power that's within you. I I don't know if you even have a choice. Yeah. Mm. You know. That makes sense. I think it became very rough for me when I had kids. Because mm. you weren't, for some reason, old masters had kids, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The whole Bellini family, the Bruegel family, you know, the kids went to work for their fathers and and if you were a talented daughter like uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, mm-hmm. you went to work for your father. Right. And, but in in those days with the Abex painters, you didn't talk about children, and mm. you didn't have children. And if you had children, you ignored them or you sent them away, like mm. Grace did, mm-hmm. which was terrible. So I had children, and I didn't mention them. You didn't mention them because then you would be less you were less being a woman artist in mm. the first place and if you had children you'd be nothing so people would just discount you yeah wow yeah. so and then one of my kids was is autistic mm-hmm. so i had to deal with all of that without letting anybody know that must have been really difficult at a time when uh, there weren't a lot of resources my dear I don't want to live anymore. You know, really? I was really close to the end. Wow. Yeah, at a young age. Wow. But, you know, you do what you have to do. And you still made art. Yeah, that in the middle of the night, I remember that. Because, you know, autistic kids, they're now beginning to believe the mothers that said, Melissa never slept. She was up. You know, so if she finally slept for a couple of hours... I would paint. I have a painting. So when did you sleep? I didn't. Really? But I have a I have that from my father. Mm. I don't need much sleep. Wow. So that's that's incredible, Audrey. I can't I can't believe it. Life was rough. It was was rough. Really, really rough. So now tell me a little bit about the sixties then. So what what changed or what what didn't change? Sixties were still rough. I was by in the sixties I was a realist. There was mid-century. I was Phil Perstein lived around the corner. Alice Neal lived two blocks from me. Mm-hmm. The Upper West Side was. We lived there. Yep. You know. So what were they like? And what were both of those people like? Phil. Yep. Phil's great. I have to call him. Phil sent me a happy birthday thing, and he said, "I'm 97." <laughs> oh, he remembered you. Oh, I know. That's Phil. good. Yeah, Phil and I were. You know, we sketched together. And I was the only woman again with that mm. whole sketch group. Oh, mm. wow. I, and Alice Neal, what was she like? Ugh. Was she an ally as a woman, as a fellow woman? No. No. Okay. Alice. She was, was a loner? Listen, all I can, I'll, I'll just tell you. <laughs> you were I'll so tell polite. You my Alice You're so Neal polite. story. Okay. Alice was a very difficult woman. She looked like a little uh, sweet Irish washerwoman grandma. Mm-hmm. But, oh, watch out for Alice. Really? Oh, my God. So, all right. So, there were, it was in the 80s, in late 70s. And um, I w- my photorealism was hot. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't even realize it then, but it was really hot. And there was some group of young feminists that were having an exhibition. And they invited Alice and me. 
And I got there and Alice was sitting, already sitting, like on a throne. And she wore these long black skirts. And, you know, the, um, like, Italian women, black right. shoes with the square heels. Right. And she sat with her legs spread apart with the skirt. That's how Alice sat. Mm-hmm. And she had a, a cane. Maybe it was an umbrella. I don't remember. And she had all of these young women artists sitting around on the floor. She was sort of holding court. And I walked in, and she picks up her cane and she points it at me and twirls it around and yells you whippersnapper I'm a better artist than you and you're in all the shows in the museums and I'm better than you and every, the whole place gets quiet and I mean I hadn't even taken my coat off right. you know I said Alice put the cane down and shut up. You're a very good artist. I'm a very good artist. Just be quiet. And she quieted down. And I never, now mind you, I was on 104th. She was on 106th. Mm-hmm. Never saw or spoke to her again. And then my book came out in 1980. Abrams was publishing a book. Anyhow. One morning, the phone rings. Seven o'clock in the morning. Well, you think somebody died, or you know, emergency. Ah, it's yeah. a hello, totally. hello, Audrey. Yes, that's Alice. I'm sorry. Clunk. That was it. And then she died. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> but at least she—that's the she most dramatic you. ending of a friendship I've ever oh or relationship, I so guess. So on her mind now I'll tell you there's more so now there's this Alice Neal show which I have yet to see Mm -hmm. and um, I wrote to the curator and I said you know congratulations on the show I'm going to go see it she writes back and says this is two weeks ago she said I was just at Alice's studio and what was on her table your book (gasps) so she was clearly impressed with your book well, she wanted Abrams to publish a book on her, and they were publishing it on me. Well, maybe she sort of also accepted the fact that you were talented, too. Who knows? Yeah. You know, it's, it's wow. too bad. It's too bad, but it was, it was nice that she did that. So now that brings up another question. How supportive were women of each other in the art scene? Or, what, or was it like you were saying, like everyone was trying to sort of, you know, ape what the men were doing in a way, like kind of doing the, you know, or acting as as gruff as they are or or whatever you however you want to characterize they it they weren't supportive no i don't think they were and i miss that a lot mm. and sharon well you're my you hero are. i mean I, you I, what do you think about today though i mean yeah how did, how did, did that change was it like i think it changed was it the feminist movement that helped change it i mean what were the moments that you think changed that i i think you know, that was very important, consciousness raising. In the feminist movement, feminist, you mean? Yeah, yep. very important. And I think men need it. Men need consciousness raising. Absolutely. Too. Feminism is for everyone, not just for yeah, women, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that changes. But, you know, by the time that came around, my group was already gone, you know. Mm. And um, I was always looking for, 
a woman artist that I could trust like a mentor, like a mentor. Or? Well, a mentor I thought was Grace or right. Elaine, but and that they didn't quite were, happen. Yeah, they, they they were friends, but no, no, no. So just colleagues, even you were looking for. Well, yeah, there she is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, it's such a joy for me to, to um, there's, there's a difference between men and women. You know, mm -hmm. I love men. I married two men. You know, I like men. Um, At the same time? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was always looking for that and maybe finding it now. Mm. Wow, that's kind of nice to yeah. think that, you know, eventually you found even with the feminists, though, I had problems because I wasn't an angry feminist. Mm. And my work was feminine. Mm. And that and, and that was criticized. I see. You know, right. Perfume bottle. Right. You know. Lipstick. And, um, yeah. Uh, and it was female. So, uh, and then... A certain amount of a certain kind of beauty that I wanted. When I went to MoMA with a friend of mine to see recent, I, recent? yeah, to oh. see Leonardo's Lady, which which they, is your which well, I want to just bring up for people who don't know when the Museum of Modern Art reopened recently. On, I think it's the second floor landing? Fifth floor. Fifth floor landing, I'm sorry. Fifth floor landing, when you get off the escalator, you see this ginormous Audrey Flack beautiful, which you get to see from a, quite a distance as well as close up in a very high traffic place. And that is named Leonardo's Lady. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful painting from the 70s, correct? Yeah. Great. So go ahead. So my friend who was with me said, you know, that's painting was clearly done by a woman. Now it's a strong, powerful painting and it's big. Mm -hmm. But she was right. You know, that if you went around the whole museum and you wanted to pick something that was done by a female artist. So there's something very female mm. in, uh, in my work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that could, it's not, Angry female is not aggressively female. It's not uh, in your face, spitting at you female. And that caused early on some discern. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Well, no, there was an article um, in the Feminist Art Journal, actually a very good article about that. So were you conscious of, of, of sort of inserting that feminine in the work? No. Or is it just so it wasn't no. conscious? So it's the now in retrospect you see The only it. conscious painting I did was uh, Chanel, you know. Mm. It was like, yeah, now I'll show them. You know, uh, <laughs> now I'll show them, all right, there's a bunch of lipstick tubes and perfume and stuff. No, I was just being me. No. I think that's through your work, but also you mentioned to me one time in your studio, you said, you know, I've always been a feminist. I've only painted and sculpted women. Yeah. So that that's the Chanel painting you're talking about, correct? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. And there's a funny story about that painting, too. Tell us. Oh, there was a collector named Morton Newman, and I was usually, I was going around grumbling a lot because all the photorealist guys were selling, and... This collector, Morton Newman, had bought all of them. And, but he had also, he, 
so he came in to the gallery and he told Lewis he was interested in my work. And he invited me to his house in Chicago and we were going to visit Bob's son who was at Northwestern. And we go to his house, first floor, Picasso, Miro. Mm -hmm. Second floor, you know, the next level up. And every time you go to another floor of this brownstone and I get to the fourth floor and there's a swinging door to the kitchen and there's a tiny little thing on the swinging kitchen door, a Louise Nevelson. So I thought, oh my God, this is the only woman on the kitchen door, right? Okay, so by now I'm grumbling. We get up to the top, all the guys, every one of my friends, every photo reels, and Bob is calming me down, my husband, because I'm ready to say, you know, fuck you, and what do you have, blah, 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 and this big collector. And you, I like too. And uh, <laughs> Bob said, now calm down, you know, don't say anything, just be quiet. So I behaved myself, and um, we went home. He calls Lewis the next day, mm. and he said, I want a, a little flack. I said, Lewis? You sell him a little painting of mine is going to go on the other side of the kitchen door. Right. No. And Lewis was great. He said, no. If you want one, you're going to have to get a big one. And he buys my only feminist painting. Wow. He bought Chanel. And did did he know or was it just coincidence, you think? I don't know what he knew. (laughs) He bought it. He liked it. And where did he hang it? Well, he was a crazy collector. He had... He had things floor to ceiling with with um, cameras going, and he hung it. He hung it. He had drapes over his library. I think it was somewhere over a drape in his library. Oh wow, that's amazing. It's kind of amazing, yeah. So let's talk about photorealists, since you're often oh, a kind God. of associated <laughs> with photorealism, often, and at least for a lot of people who who may only know your work a little bit. What was that like? I mean, was it a movement? Like, how did you become part of photorealism? What was the thing? Was it sort of like, did you really feel an affinity with all those artists? How, how did yes, that work? Yes, yes. It okay. really was some honest thing that was happening that Ivan Karp and Lewis just spotted. They just, it, something was happening. And we, we were working from photographs. Okay. And uh, I had started with a little brownie camera mm-hmm. painting my children uh, and things that moved and wouldn't stay still for me. But I think we were all interested in the photograph. We were all good photographers. I was a really terrific photographer. I, I had a Hasselblad camera. I had several contacts cameras oh i've never seen your photographs when do we see your photographs well there was a show of my photographs once but i I never thought of photography as in and of itself it was a means for my painting right so where was that photo show you had it was a gallery i'm no longer with it was uh gary snyder and garth grennan got it and how long ago was that a lot of years ago. Oh, a lot of years. Okay. So, uh, wow, I didn't know that part of you. I love that. Yeah. there And there were some beautiful ones that now I'm going through that never became paintings. But, you know, photorealism is a really, really important movement that has never been given 
it's full due. Why do you think? Well, Hilton Kramer once wrote, there was a show at the Guggenheim. Oh, the curmudgeon. (laughs) Yeah, he said, well, you know, now we know there were lines around the block. Well, now we know it's not really good because the public likes it. So again, I think there's an elitist thing. What I think is very interesting, photorealism brings back realism. It brings photography back. Very important. And it's not quite understood that it's not just artists copying a photograph. Nothing could be further from the truth than that in my work. And I think what is interesting now is black artists have been very affected by photo. Kehinde Wiley, you know, and they, they are not afraid to be labeled. The, what, what, did, what did Rob Store say in my film? And he said it nicely, but he said, uh, I defy good taste. Right. A lot of these young artists have been very affected by photorealism, but it's, but it's not been honored the way it should. Got it. So tell me a little, let's talk about your work itself in that period. You know, I've always noticed that there's a certain kind of shine or almost even wetness, right? Like almost the surface seemed to like glimmer or something in your paintings. Where does that come from? Why was that important for you? That's because I was I had theories about light. Mm. And what you're seeing is I was painting light. So what, why, why that? Because others weren't painting quite like that. So yeah, what was it about you? They were interested in the light shining off of a car. Richard Estes is a dear friend of mine. It, uh, he was on, what is he, on 92nd. We're all in the neighborhood. He was interested in the light of a reflection of a glass window. Right. You know. Um, but I got really hooked on light. You know, now, at one point, I stopped painting. And nobody knows I stopped because my paintings kept being borrowed for shows. Hmm. But I, I didn't paint for from 1980 until a few years ago. What? Really? Yeah. I sculpted. But you stopped painting? Stopped painting. Why? That's a long story. You know, I had to really delve deep into myself. So that's part of this book. Got it. Okay, well, okay, we'll, which, we'll read that book. Which I just got a, you know, contract on. Oh, I know. Uh, exciting. Yeah. Is, is, the book, is the book finished yet? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, pretty much. good. Oh, I can't pretty wait. Much. Okay, that sounds exciting. So, but you were sculpting at the time. I was sculpting for like 30 years or something. So how did you do that? Because most sculptors I know have trouble with space, storage. I mean, these are all major issues for an artist, yeah. especially in New York. How did you How did you deal with that? You deal with it one way by hook and by crook. So what does that mean? Closets and things. <laughs> and if I got a big commission, it was in a foundry. Got it. And I, you know, I dealt with a lot. I did a lot of public commissions, mm-hmm. all very feminist. Mm-hmm. Very feminist. Right. And now I'm back to painting. I've been painting. So what What brought you back to painting? <sighs> Who knows what happened? You know, Michelangelo painted, he sculpted. You know, yeah. we, we get categorized. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. I had a bunch of canvases stacked against the wall of my studio in East Hampton. I bought my house from Jimmy Ernst. Okay. You have to come out. 
Oh, I'd love to. And um, it was there were canvases that Chuck Klaus and I made. You know, he made his and I made mine, but we had, we were discussing how we would get a smooth surface. So we would put layers of gesso and then wet sand it and put water and so we could, So they're beautiful. And then one day, I started painting. Hmm. So it just happened. Yeah, it's a new series. It's um, I call it post pop baroque. Hmm. We see a little bit in your in the documentary. Well, yeah. We see a little yeah. bit there. Yeah. yeah. Queen of Hearts for those who haven't watched it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, were you taking photographs during that period where you start stop painting? Did that ever stop? I don't think it ever stopped. Okay. Um, so the photography stayed constant. Yeah, that's there. Drawing is always there. Okay. So but you were the still drawing. Painting, okay. it was interesting. It was you'll read about it. Okay. So I what mean, were you drawing really then? Profound. What were you drawing during that time? Anything. Anything. I don't know. So Anything. was it realism but still? I was really, yep. really sculpting. Got I was really hot into sculpture, studying it, amassing a library of books. I closed the door to the studio and I didn't show for ten years. Wow. Amazing. Just learned how to sculpt. So now what do you think of your role now as a kind of, you know, uh, an elder feminist woman artist in, in New York? You know, I mean, I see how much, you know, Sharon admires you and I know other women do as well as most men and everyone else. But, you know, curious way because, you know, you didn't quite have that kind of role, right? You didn't have someone who seemed to really sort of play that role for you early, even though you, you mentioned Elaine and, and a couple of other people. What does it feel like now? Do you feel a sense of responsibility? Do you feel like, I can't believe I'm here? Yeah, I, um, well, just get back to that, but mm -hmm. I think who, like Luisa Roldan, who's a 17th century sculptor, I took old mistresses and mm -hmm. old masters as my role models. Mm. They're my family. Right. And um, I I am amazed at how much it was around my birthday, how many letters and emails I've received also after the film of how um, how much I've affected a lot of people out there, men and women. Amazing. And that makes me feel good. You know, that maybe one thing I said gave them courage or hope or it really makes me feel good so I think I've had a role and maybe I think this is good maybe this will go out in there there are a lot of women who have children who responded um, a lot of men responded so now when you see your work in places like the Museum of Modern Art, which if I understand correctly, you didn't know that was being hung, did you? No, they didn't let me know. They didn't like, so what does that feel like? You see that, I mean, is it an out of body experience? Do you know, it's like, I'd love to get a little sense of what that feels like. Cause you know, for a lot of artists, that is the pinnacle, right? That's yeah. what they want. You know, Rog, it's, it's a wonderful question. And I remember sitting when the garden was not cement, right? Mm -hmm. You put up, you take paradise, you put up a parking lot. And I remember <laughs> going to MoMA as a kid from high school in Cooper, and I would take my sneakers off 
and I would put my feet in the, in the earth. And I think someday, someday, maybe my painting will be up. And so now I'm, I was 89, because I, I just, when, when they put it up, and... You're 89 years old when they put it up. Yeah, a couple of months ago. Right, right, right. right. Ago, now I'm 90. And I was really surprised that they didn't tell me mm-hmm. I wasn't invited to the opening. Right. Because MoMA was my home, you know, MoMA, mother, was my mother. And, you know, if you've had any kind of difficulties with your mother, which, uh, yeah, I had a oddball mother. So I was surprised. You know, I started getting emails. Hey, I just saw your painting on the fifth floor. Um, you know, it felt good, but things are not the way they were. Hmm. And the museum is not the same museum that I knew and loved. Mm. It, it's not the artist's museum that it was. Does that make you sad? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel bad about it. It feels very corporate. Right. And um, So did it not feel this? Because, you know, it also has a reputation of always being rather corporate, right, MoMA? Was it not like that before? I never thought of it that way. Now, maybe... Okay. My consciousness wasn't raised enough, mm-hmm. but it was smaller. Right. It's not as alienating. Yeah, I mean, this is overpowering and bigger and... It's an airport terminal, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, the architecture of it upsets me. It's funny, I've never heard anyone say, I love the architecture at MoMA, which is so funny. You'd think someplace like the Museum of Modern Art could get that together, you yeah. know? It feels so alienating. And it does. It does. It's such a weird thing. You're like, you kind of wonder, who's this for? And what are they trying to communicate? Yeah. yeah. And very often, these architects who we can call starchitects, right. just, it's for them, really. Right. right. So there's this kind of hotshot corporate, I don't even want to use the word glamorous because I don't find it glamorous. Right. I just find it off-putting. Mm-hmm. Mm. Interesting. Do you think that, I mean, where do you think you would want that context for your work then? Oh, that's a great and, question. And by the way, I mm. I think most artists, almost every artist I know feels the same way. Right. Yeah. I agree. I, I don't agree. know anyone who feels otherwise, I, I don't, to be quite yeah. honest. It's not an aspiration for me. But what... Yeah, what is a good context What's a good context? Work? Like, what do, you, what do you think you would feel... Like, where do you think when you see your work hanging in that context, you're like, that's really where it should be? Do you know? Like, where, what context do you prefer in people's homes? Do you prefer in libraries? Do you prefer in, you know, small museums? I mean, what, what kind of space works for you? Or maybe what works for your work, you think? Not a kitchen door. Not a kitchen door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or know, a bathroom. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a big question because a lot of artwork now is made big mm-hmm. for museums. Right. And it has to be big, and it's no longer scaled for... I mean, it can't even fit in people's homes. No. Unless they have no. ginormous homes. And right? that, that is a big painting that could fit in someone's home. But even but at museums like 
I like the rooms of the Met. I hope they don't change it. Mm. You know, I go see, I visit Carlo Crivelli. Mm. Oh, yeah, I love love You love work. Crivelli? Of course, oh. with all the fruits and the, and oh the patterns. Oh, my God, and, the, and his cucumber. Yeah, they're mm. amazing. Mm. Yeah. Oh, you know, let me tell you one nice thing that's happening. He's a Renaissance painter for those who may not. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a, a 15th century Venetian right. painter mm. who's very excessive, eccentric. And they put him down. They wrote him out of art history. Mm -hmm. Vasari would not write about him. Mm. And they call him decorative. Well, he loves ornamentation and decoration. But his faces are so expressive. Oh, my God, the Pieta. They're beautiful. Oh, and the Grimacing Mary. So I found him when I was 14. And I have been in love. I wrote a paper on him. So a couple of years ago, about two years ago, I get emails from uh, a director of a museum in Birmingham, England, saying, I have your paper on Crivelli. I am a Crivelli lover. I want to come and talk to you. Somebody is writing a thesis on Crivelli. And I was like, you know, Crivelli lovers are like a cult. Right. You just love Crivelli. And he was a bad boy, by the way. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Mm. What does yeah. that mean? He abducted somebody's wife mm. and locked her in his basement. Oh, my. Yeah. He was a bad boy. Wow. So he got thrown out of Venice. Oh. And he went, any, anyhow. Okay. For kidnapping. So he, uh, but Jeez. God, the guy is genius, a genius, who you're supposed to look down on. Right. You know, like Bougarou. So he comes over and he said, I am really trying to put on a Crivelli exhibition. And I had made a couple of Crivellis, I mean, based, you know. Mm -hmm. One is called Pollock's Cans, and it was a drawing, big drawing of the Pieta with Pollock's paint cans. And, and now I just made another Crivelli, which has one of his beautiful Madonnas and a 15th century skeleton on the, and I said, I was gonna put his fruits and cucumbers on the right, right? Mm -hmm. So Madonna's in the middle. And then my, my, my husband, who's ailing, was sitting in the kitchen and the light was hitting his face and I got my camera I took a picture and I struggled with it but he's on the right side of the Crivelli Madonna oh wow and on his shirt which Hannah gave it says someone somebody in Brooklyn loves me Aww. I love so that so it's a crazy painting it's That's a crazy amazing. painting and it's a beautiful painting that is going to be in the Crivelli. The guy, what's his name? Jonathan Watkins, got the grants. He's getting something from the Met. He's getting four Crivellis. So from the loans are coming through. Wow. Nice. We are going to go see a Crivelli show. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? I can't That's wait. Fantastic. That's like getting Caravaggio wait. or Leonardo. Wow. Yeah. Or, amazing. Or, so, so I'm getting. I'm sensing. I'm having a, two paintings in that show. Oh, That's amazing. so great. So oh I'm, 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 I'm sensing a trend here also of you taking a look at, uh, or sort of trying to look at art history or art that other people dismiss. Yes, 
and the new work, the post-paparoque stuff, mm -hmm. is based on a lot of engravers and woodcut mm. artists who are completely unsung. Amazing. So why do you think you have that tendency or, or that interest? I think I just love that stuff. And then it turns out that, that you're not supposed to like it. Right. You know? Right. Like you're not supposed to be different than other people. You're supposed to like what MoMA tells you to like. Mm, right. right. You're not supposed to like Bouguereau. So we've been talking a little bit about history. This is really very much a 20th century where there was sort of this hegemony of this sort of story of modernism and all these stories that you're supposed to take as accepted gospel, right? You know, whether it's Greenberg or you had mentioned also, you know, the critics and stuff and all these people. Now, what do you think about what's happening in art history now? that things are sort of being rearranged and people are kind of jettisoning some of those older ideas we've had. What do you think about that? Do you think it's doing a service, disservice? Well, major, major question. Mm. Really, I think about it a lot. So what do you think? Um, I have a lot of thoughts. You know, at first when I heard that Yale was discontinuing that course, mm -hmm which I took, which changed the my survey. Life. Yeah. The survey, yep, of Western art, I believe. Is that yeah. What it is? Yep. yeah, history of art. I was upset. But then I thought, you know, there were no women in, in Jansen. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, by the way. Which was the big textbook that was often used to teach. Yeah. yeah. And I sort of am responsible for getting Mary Cassatt into mm -hmm. that. She wasn't in there. Wow. So I think. Oh my, how, how, I've got to pull my thoughts together. I think you cannot teach an art history course that contains everything. It's just too big. Sure. It's too big. Chinese, Japanese, Af Afghani, you know, mm -hmm. Indian, whatever. You, you, you can't do it. You can't do it in one course. I think you cannot deny the, the development of Western art. You know, I look back at it now and I say, well, what did I learn? I learned art made by white Christian men. Mm -hmm. And here I am Jewish. And if you think about it, in all the museums, and I've been to a lot of museums all over the world, the only thing, only painting I've ever seen that has, that I can conjure up is Chagall's rabbi. Hmm. Okay. And there might be one or two, but basically it's the history of Christ on the cross, really. Right, right. But you cannot deny the development of drawing and what some of these old masters and mistresses accomplished. It's undeniable. Okay. And but is anyone trying to deny it? Well, I think a lot is being thrown at us mm -hmm. by young and less developed artists who have not developed skills and lived long enough. Mm -hmm. um, you know, otherwise, anything, you know, there was a time when it was when I was around Yale, I remember, that anything you say is art is art. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying, well, if somebody comes into the classroom and shoots somebody and they call that art, is that art? I don't think that's art. Hmm. I do not. I do not call that art. 
so then it's you know what is art who is it for um so who is it for like who do you who do you make work for audrey you know i i think about by the way thomas kincaid Mm -hmm. and i you know i don't let anybody go right but it's art art takes you out of this veil of tears out of this profane time we live in and great art brings you to another place it really does and that look we're all gonna die i've heard you've heard yeah (laughs) and i'm facing it you know you gotta face it we try very hard not to but art can do something that can cut across time cut across centuries i stand in front of a late rembrandt self-portrait and i just 500 years are, are gone. You know, right. He's right there for me. There, there was a, was it a Pontormo? That was at the Frick. Oh, my God. Um, some Mantegna just brings you to another place. That is something that art does. Okay. And it does. Now... You're a young artist, you want to express yourself, you're having a hard time, you're not making any money, you are a person of color, all important. But I think you have to keep in mind, maybe that's in one, maybe there are different kinds of art. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just talking about one specific kind of art that I can't live without. Right. And maybe you see your own work as part of. I do. Right. So now, what... What do you think? Hmm. Usually people I'm interviewing don't turn it back on me, but I'm happy to to respond. I'm curious. You see a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think it is... I guess what part of the concern I have sometimes with these kind of new, you know, adding on to the canon things is I think it at the end of the day, it still reinforces the centrality of this kind of dead white Christian European male artist necessarily. And I don't necessarily think, I think that, I mean, obviously I think it's important work. I enjoy it. I go to museums and see it and, you know, I've studied it and all those, but I do think sometimes its centrality is overplayed too. Do you know? I do think it's, it's part of a much bigger conversation that's global. And I think sometimes seeing the work of Italian Renaissance masters, just to use an example, makes more sense when you understand what was going on in Iran at the same period or what was going on in Western Africa and the textiles. Because, you know, someone like Crivelli have all these lush textiles and these things. But where were the textiles coming from? Where is the language coming from? So I do think there's those connections actually make the work more interesting, mm-hmm. do you know? Without it trying, because my my bigger concern is this kind of idea of, of the individual genius that gets played into art, Western art history so much. Yeah. And I think it takes a village to make a painting in some ways. Do you know? It's like, I think it takes a community of people thinking about art. It takes a community of people writing about it, showing it. Do you know what I mean? And so I think sometimes when we don't see those connections, we end up not having the full picture. And I feel like people are trying to give us a fuller picture. And I think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because, you know, they're, not everyone um, is very good at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you know? But that's, that's my take. 
So I, you know, I think as like in the case that's we could talk about photorealism. I feel like photorealism is also particularly interesting when you look at what was going on in the rest of the world at the same time too. Whether it was films in Senegal that were dealing with different types of representation, or at the same time what was going on in India and sort of like modernism and sort of like what was going on in terms of representation there. Like I actually think those interconnections are really, I think, just make the work more interesting. Absolutely. So I guess that's where, that's the part that I, I, I'm really interested in. Because I don't think it diminishes the work. I think, if anything, it just sort of makes the work feel more connected, to be quite honest. I could not agree with you more. So that's, that's my take. How about you, Sharon? What's oh your gosh. take? No, no, I'm just listening. Uh, no, 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 you're, no, yeah, no. <laughs> Audrey asked me a question, so now I'm oh asking you. Oh, my God. I can't agree with both of you. I mean, there it is a fuller you picture. You can't agree with us? No, I, I can't agree with you more. <laughs> but I, I, I don't like what, what Jansen and Gardner did. You know, I, I think that uh, one, one time I mentioned that those books should be burned. And um, a friend of ours, uh, a good friend of uh, Harag's, Alpesh Patel, said, no, you can't burn them unless it's an art piece. You always have to be able to have that, that as a reference to go from. And so I learned from him that, and I think it's important not to ignore it, but to recognize it. So I think we should wrap up soon. And so Audrey, I'm gonna invite you to figure out how we wanna end this. What do you think? What do we wanna impart or share, or maybe just bring up? that you think would be relevant for people? Because, you know, I, I'm hoping this podcast will also introduce some new people who don't know your work, do you know? And this is going to open up their worlds to your work, which I mm -hmm. think is really wonderful. So what should people know about you, your life, your work, your perspective? You know, anything you can think of? Oh my God, we covered so much. Well, just about art that it is, um, it is not a commodity, which it's become, that it's for everyone, mm. you know? It's not just for a couple of wealthy collectors, that you shouldn't be afraid to like what you like. And it's just, I don't know how we could live without it in this world. I think it's, we're, we're better for it. Mm. Whether there are, you know, young upstarts, uh, uh, but but I think the young upstarts have to keep in mind that what we're really interested in. I think beauty, mm -hmm. you know, I think concepts of beauty have changed. Mm -hmm. um, I struggled with it with my Queen Catherine, you know, the concept of, of the, the canons of proportion, which were based on Greek and Roman and certainly had totally totally different, you know, a, a, an African face or a Asian face, mm -hmm. totally different than a, a white Greek male face. So I think a kind of tolerance. Also, I think a slowing down from the hysteria that we're in. Mm -hmm. I think slow art, uh, internalizing and um, and keeping your eye on 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 a kind of you know we need healing we need healing we've been through hell 
And I, you know, this pandemic, it just can go on and on. What was it, 300 years in Europe, it went on. Right. And I think, yes, there's time for protest and there's time for anger and there's time to present all of that stuff, but there's also a need for other kind of images, for images in the collective unconscious that um, bring you some kind of peace or healing in the other part of your brain. And art can do that too. So I think that's important to be let in now, particularly that since there's this revolution taking place, and it is, it's undeniable, mm-hmm. and it's important, and it's opening my mind every day. I'm learning new things. So during that time of upheaval and revolution, mm-hmm. our bodies can get sick and our minds can get sick. Right. And so there's something that art can offer us through imagery and and beauty and peace or something for what for whoever responds to whatever is presented. That's what I think is very important now. That's the wisdom of being my age. You got to have it. You don't want to, you know, go through all that and get sick. Right. The way you describe it, it almost sounds like an anchor. Art is like an anchor or something almost. Yeah, it helps us live. And ground. You know, it, it helps us live. It helps us deal with our mortality. Right. So how about you, Sharon? I want to ask you it, what you would say to women artists today and because where we are now and my feeling is that we still need a lot more community and exchange and sharing um, and also a strong community of people who identify as women. What would you say to them? I'd say I love you all. (laughs) Keep doing it and keep keep together and be kind to each other and I'm kind to the men, too, because they need it more than we do, even. Interesting. Um, And, you know, more power to us. Yeah. Beautiful place to stop. Thank you, Audrey, for being so open with us and for sharing your life experience and and your insights. It's, It's so wonderful to hear and... You know, I hope I hope people do explore your work more because I think there's so many so many layers, and I am so excited to learn about your photography, which I didn't know about. So I'm gonna probably have to bother you about that at one point. So I really want to learn about that too. And thank you, Sharon, for joining oh my us. Gosh, thank you. Um, and making us both feel comfortable to have this conversation. <laughs> I love I love you both. Um, and Audrey, man, you have been a hero for me and a backbone for me my whole life. So thank you for everything that you've done. Well, thank you. This is my first podcast. Woohoo! Thank you. I'd like to hear it. You have to let me know when it's on. Will do. Will do. Thank you again. This episode, The Music is Ultra, Young Sherman Mix by Evian Christ, courtesy of Warp Records. I'm Hrag Vartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening.